we're doing this series we're called Going Forward, because it's so much better going forward than going backwards in life. And God wants us to move forward, and the place he's taking us to ultimately is a place where Jesus comes again in all of his glory. And that's the thing that's to fill our minds as Christians more than any other thing that's going on in the world right now, and there's some huge things happening We're to be looking forward to the day when Jesus comes again in his rule and reign, and we're going to be with him forever. So that's where we're at. And we're in these last couple of messages in 1 Thessalonians. Say, ah, it's been good, hasn't it, so far? Well, I thought it was. Anyway, so we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 22. It says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is particularly the verse. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I don't know if you're reading it in your Bible. Uh, it maybe comes under a title that says final instructions. And uh, I don't want you to think of these as sort of lesser things that are less important than what's happened in the letter. I want you to think that When you're leaving the house and you've forgotten to say those things that are really important to somebody in the house, these are the things that Paul is shouting back through the door before he slams it. It might be, uh, remember to feed the cat. Uh, Sometimes when Julie goes away for a weekend or something, she'll she'll say to me, she'll say, uh, if anything happens to me, make sure the kids eat vegetables. I don't know why she feels the need to to say that. I mean, perhaps, uh, perhaps that's right. But uh, these are the final instructions. These are really short, important, pithy things. And we're going to focus on just a couple of them today. But let me just mention one, because I felt, as I was reading the verses, I felt I just needed to, um, I needed to just dwell on it for a moment, where he says, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. And if we want to be a church that cares for all, and if we want to be a church for all, then here's something just to think about for a moment. And that is that, The Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And it's going to be true, isn't it, in a community this size, that there's some people who will be rejoicing. Perhaps they got married yesterday, for example. It was a really happy day. There'll be other people who are experiencing loss or grief or hardship. And those things happen in one and the same community at the same time. That's why... We're to be a church that constantly looks out for one another. And I'd love to invite you to make it your job on a Sunday morning or a small group when you go along to look out for those people who are looking a little disheartened today and then be God's encouragement to them. And uh, just want to say one one very practical thing, actually. We've got a room at the back full of mums. Hi, mums. Great to see you this morning. Um, It can be quite a tough job with young babies in church. For those of us who don't have kids, you may not appreciate quite how hard that is if you haven't slept all night and then trying to battle to come to church and get something out of it. So we've got this room at the back, which is totally brilliant, which we're making available to them and in the hope that they'll get something more out of church than they might otherwise. So just to say it's not the most soundproof room. 
So if you hear a bit of happy squawking or squealing coming through the wall, a bit of shouting from either a child or a parent, that's totally, totally normal. And uh, if you're easily distracted by noise, then if you head up onto the balcony, you can't hear anything up there at all, apparently. So you're very welcome, if you're easily distracted like I am, to use those seats. Anyway, so let's be an encouraging people, encouraging one another. Uh, through all the seasons of life, all the challenges of life, as has already been talked about. So two verses today that we're going to look at. He says, do not quench the spirit and do not treat prophecies with contempt. It might surprise you to know in the whole of the book of 1 Thessalonians, there's only two do nots. And we've read them both today. And you think, wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Perhaps you've come from a background or perhaps you've not really been around Christian circles and you just assumed that Christianity was was all about the do nots. It was all about the forbidden things that you mustn't do because, you know, God doesn't like those things. Well, here's the interesting thing. There's only two things mentioned in the book of 1 Thessalonians where Paul says, do not do this. He spends five chapters just really, really encouraging them in the life that they have. Now, that's different. Uh, it's different to the old covenant. We, we had, uh, Sandy talked about the, the new covenant that we have in Jesus. The old covenant was based around the law. It was based around the Ten Commandments. And how many do nots in the Ten Commandments? A lot. Ten, probably. You could, you could read a do not into all of those. Because it, it was a covenant of restraint. God recognized the sinfulness of human hearts. And he said, We need to stop the destructive power of sin in God's people. Therefore, do not do this. Do not create idols. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Don't steal. All of these do nots. But God has brought us as believers in Jesus into a far different covenant, a far superior covenant. And it's a covenant which is governed by the Holy Spirit. And when you read these verses today, you understand that Paul isn't giving people a a command a behavioral command, he's saying, don't stop the Holy Spirit working in your life. There's a a verse in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know what? The biggest safeguard for you walking in holiness and sanctification and God's will for your life is this, is to get the Holy Spirit working in your life more and more and more. That's how it works. So, If we were to do a quick summary of uh, 1 Thessalonians so far, I think, well, is this true? Well, if you were to read chapter 1, here's my summary. Paul just tells them about the greatness of God's story in their life so far. Chapter 2, Paul simply tells them, we really love you guys. Chapter 3, Paul says, I'm so glad that you're standing strong in Jesus. Chapter 4, it's an encouragement. He says, avoid sexual immorality. Avoid every kind of evil, but keep living for Jesus. And chapter five, get ready because Jesus is coming again. It's all encouragement. People talk about the 80-20 principle. Have you heard of that? 80% encouragement. If you're giving somebody some feedback, give them eight bits of encouragement and two bits of little things they could work on. Well, I don't know what the ratio is in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'd suggest it's even higher than that. God is at work in your life to encourage you, to stir you, to lead you on in the power of his Holy Spirit. There was a, a story when Jesus rose again from the dead and he was walking, uh, and there was two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes incognito alongside them. And 
uh, he, they don't know who he is, but he starts talking to them and teaching them about God and about himself and about the cross. And then he breaks bread with them, just like we did this morning. And then the penny drops, it was Jesus. And then he disappeared from their sight. But this is what one of the disciples said to the other. He said, did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us along the road? The Holy Spirit is described as a companion who walks alongside us in the journey of life. He's the one who's the friend. He's the one who, uh, who, who never leaves us or forsakes us. And today, if you want God to work in your life, then walk alongside the Holy Spirit and let him walk with you. So we get to verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. Hold on to what is good. So here's the general point. The specific point is about prophecy. We're going to come on to that in a moment. The general point is this. Don't quench the spirit. Quench means to put something out, like a fire extinguisher, putting out a fire. And here's the instruction. Do not quench the spirit. If you read it in a different translation, do not put out the spirit's fire. Now, right away, that might sort of trigger something for you. You think, well, how can, how can the Holy Spirit be quenched anyway? Because he's God, isn't he? If he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if, if God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, we sing those songs, unstoppable God. Let your glory go on and on. Ultimately, God can't be stopped. So in what sense can the Holy Spirit, who is God, be quenched? And it's not saying that the Holy Spirit is less than God. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit, therefore, isn't powerful. He's saying that there are behaviors in the Christian life that can hinder the work of God in an individual believer's life and in a church community. And if we resist him, and if we quench him, the Holy Spirit will find other people to work with. And we want to be people who God works with, don't we? So therefore, we need to hear what this command is saying and what it's not saying. So we read, for example, in Ephesians 4 verse 30, that uh, it says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God talking in the context of sin. When we sin, when we do stuff wrong, it it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks and he doesn't want us to harden our hearts. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we don't listen. The Holy Spirit is grieved when he distributes his gifts and we don't receive them. But there's three main areas that I believe we can quench the Holy Spirit. And just briefly to to look at these, the first is we can reject him, second is we can diminish him, and the third is we can neglect him. So if you were to go back to Matthew chapter 12, you'd find that Jesus says this, uh, this thing. He says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. It's quite a strong statement to make. And people say, wow, what is this unforgivable sin? What is this sin against the Holy Spirit? What is he talking about? And it's a hard verse to understand, but in its context, you see that Jesus is doing remarkable miracles in front of the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't, uh, don't trust Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They're looking to trip him up. 
And so when Jesus does some remarkable miracles, he casts out demons, he heals the sick, he opens blind eyes, he raises the dead. And these Pharisees, they look at Jesus, who is the most spirit-filled person you can ever meet, because he's God in the flesh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they look at him and they say, yeah, that's not God at work. That's the devil. That's Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he drives out demons. They look at the purest version of the Holy Spirit-filled life in Jesus, the Son of God, and they say, he's evil. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, to reject the Holy Spirit, is to reject the person of Jesus, to reject who he is, is to, is to reject that he's the Son of God and to say he has no call on my life. That's why it can't be forgiven. Jesus said, any sin against the Son of Man can be forgiven. He says, those Romans who drove nails through my hands and feet, he said, they can be forgiven. In fact, on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, this is the one thing that can't be forgiven. It's when somebody says, Jesus, I don't want you in my life. You might be, you're here today and you're looking at Christianity. just want to invite you to, to receive Jesus into your life and to receive the wonder of his Holy Spirit to come into your life. That you don't quench the Holy Spirit. The second way that we can quench the Spirit is by diminishing him. You know, God never diminishes his work in somebody's life. In fact, one of the prophecies about Jesus in the book of Isaiah, which we read in Matthew chapter 12, says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That word snuff out is the same word that we read uh, in the verse. He he won't extinguish it. He won't quench it. When God works in somebody's life, even if there's a flicker, you know, in your life, even if there's a flicker of something good happening in your life, you know, Jesus comes and he fans that into flame and he says, I'm going to work with this. Jesus isn't the, the CEO of a corporate organization who goes around the church saying, well, that's not bearing much fruit. Close it down. God works with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Maybe you feel like one of those today. Well, God's at work in you, and he wants you and I to be people who value the work of God in one another's lives, even though it's incomplete and imperfect and small at times, even though there's nothing to be seen. We say, in faith, I'm going to believe God's at work. Here's the third way that we can quench the Spirit. We can neglect him. Uh, a few Sundays ago, Sunday evening, Dara was preaching on the parable of the ten virgins from Matthew 25, verse 8. Five of those were in the story that Jesus told, had plenty of oil with them to keep their lamps going. And five of them thought they didn't need much. So they just had enough to kind of last them for a little while. And it turned out they needed more. And so they said to the other, please lend us some of your oil because our, our candles are going out. It's the same word. Our candles are being extinguished. Therefore, extinguishing the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, isn't just what somebody else can do to you. It's about the priority you give it in your own life as well. It's about keeping your life fueled. It's about positioning yourself in places where the Holy Spirit can fill you and help you. The community of God, the presence of God, being alone with God, reading the Word of God. These are the things that help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the general. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Now, I wonder when I, when I read the book of 1 Thessalonians, I've got a theory, right? I've got a theory why he says, don't quench the Spirit, 
and don't neglect the uh, prophecies. Do you want to hear it? Great. Downstairs they want to hear it. <laughs> um, so my theory is this. The, the book is really them asking him questions about the Lord's return. And so he's encouraging them, saying, this is great, Jesus is coming, and they're asking him questions about how's it going to happen and who's going to rise first, and he answers those questions. That's a wonderfully spirit-filled activity. In fact, the last page of the Bible, Revelation 22, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Because spirit-filled Christians, they're constantly saying, you know, this world's a mess, Jesus, come again. And the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. If you're not longing for Jesus to come again, you need more of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you know there's a a flip side to that? I wonder if there was a passivity in the Thessalonian church about the idea that God wants to do stuff now. So they're saying, we're looking for Jesus to come again. We're looking for the kingdom to come. And Paul's saying, well, that's really great. But in your hunger for the Holy Spirit, let's not quench him. Let's not quench his activity now. Let's not quench the idea that he wants to speak now into messed up, difficult, broken situations and to bring his kingdom to bear in our lives now. Does that make sense as an idea? I thought it made sense of the, the, the book overall. So the, uh, the, 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 this idea of treating prophecies with contempt. He says, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. Hold on to what is good. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten about that poster. There we go. So, um, so Christmas is coming. Brussels sprouts are coming. You know that feeling you have about Brussels sprouts, some of you, or your kids do. And treating with contempt, despising. And God says, don't be like that about prophecy. Um, it, the, the Greek word used, exuthenio, it means to make nothing of, to scorn, to neglect, to disregard. It was used of Jesus. He said that the stone the builders have rejected, have despised, has become the cornerstone. It's used in 1 Corinthians 1 to talk about Christians. It says God chose the, uh, the foolish things, the despised things, the same word, to, to nullify the things that are. It's interesting, in God's wisdom, he chooses things that get despised by other people to reveal his glory to the world. Jesus hanging on a cross, nobody said, whoa, amazing. Look at what he's doing. Nobody said it. Not even his own followers said it. But that was the thing that was going to reconcile the human race to God. Nobody looked at the early church in Corinth and said, whoa, these guys have got it together. I can see how the world is going to get changed through them. But God did. He said, through the foolish, through the weak, through the despised. And he says this about prophecy. This is a gift that can be easily despised, but you know what? This is a way that God reveals his glory to his people and to the world. So prophecy, if you're not familiar with this idea, just in brief, is a gift that's mentioned frequently in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, quoting the prophet Joel, He says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, talking about this new covenant era that we live in. In Acts chapter 21, we read about an evangelist called Philip who had four daughters who prophesied. I kind of bet mealtimes were fun in their family. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read that one of the gifts that was manifest in the early church, along with speaking in tongues and discernment and healing, was this gift of prophecy. And it was there to build up the church for the common good. 
It was a gift that was widely available. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31. Paul said to the Corinthian churches, you may all prophesy in turn. He looked at a whole congregation and said, you know, all of you can do this. All of us can hear God and can speak the word of God into the community of God. But it's also something that some are more gifted at than others because Romans chapter 12 says, if your gift is prophesying, do it in accordance with your faith. So therefore, some of us will have smaller faith in this area. Some of us will have greater faith. For some people in the Bible, they had this gift in such abundance, they were called prophets. In Acts chapter 13, uh, you read about the church in Antioch. It says there was prophets and teachers there, people who were clearly known to bring the now word of God into a situation alongside teachers who would teach the scriptures, which is the word of God. Some of the prophetic stuff that we read about in the Bible is for communities, churches, and some of it is for individuals. Timothy received personal prophecies in chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus prophesied over Jerusalem, over Peter, over John, and over his disciples. We also read that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9, that this is an imperfect gift, the gift of New Testament prophecy. We now know in part one day we will know in full. Therefore, we understand that any prophetic utterance that we hear in this age is, is going to be mixed between 100% the word of God and 100% the flesh. So the question I want to ask in these closing moments, my hope is that we'll have a little bit of time at the end where we can respond and think and begin to act in this. The question I want to ask is, well, how do we honour the gift of prophecy? If we're being told not to treat it contemptfully, not to despise it, what does it look like to honour prophecy? I've got three W's for you. W, 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 okay? Because this has global impact. It's worldwide. In fact, in all seriousness, the biggest challenge to the church in this nation and across the world, isn't rampant secularism. That is a challenge. The biggest challenge is this. It's getting Christians to receive the gifts of God and the Spirit of God. I mean, for goodness sake, people say, well, Christians are in decline. Christianity started with 12 people. It started in decline. It started with nothing. And then it took the world. If we take God at his word and if we receive his gifts, I believe God can invade this culture with his love and his grace through his church if we receive his gifts and his power afresh. So here's number one. We want to welcome. We need to welcome the gift of prophecy. Say welcome. Welcome. And uh, what that means is this. We simply make space for God to speak. We make space for God to speak. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's what Paul said to Timothy in another book. You make space for it. You welcome it. Sometimes people come into a church like ours and they'll make this comment to me. They say, oh yeah, I love this kind of church. I love that you value contribution because that's so cool these days, not to have it all scripted, but to have just different people come up and do stuff. Guys, it's not open mic night. This is how God, by his Holy Spirit, brings his life and power into the community. To be honest, I'm a bit more of a planner. I, I like things that kind of go according to plan. 
you know, if I went to a concert with, uh, I've been to a concert sometimes with Simon here on the front row, and uh, uh, like a, an orchestral concert in the Usher Hall. If those sort of 30 or so musicians just tipped up, and if they announced from the front, you know what, we've prepared all these pieces, but we're all just going to do our own thing today. And, you know, we're not going to try and do it together. We're all just going to play our own notes. It would sound awful, wouldn't it? I, I think it would. And, and some of you are like, hey, this sounds like a crazy night out. We could do that, totally. <laughs> the point of New Testament worship isn't that everybody's just doing their own thing. The point is that the Holy Spirit orchestrates it in such a way that everybody says, this is beautiful. That person sharing and that person singing a song and that person prophesies, that person brings a word of knowledge and the Holy Spirit brings it all together. Everybody says, how did that happen? I love reviewing our Sunday gatherings and saying, how did that happen? It's so, so exciting when God is at work. For some of us, like uh, the prophet Samuel of old, we need to learn to hear the voice of God. Do you remember God woke him in the night, called him his name, Samuel. And he didn't know where it was coming from. So he went to his leader, Eli, and he said, he said I, I, are you calling me? And he says, no, no, I think God is. Next time you say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. For us, we need to be those who learn to hear the voice of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strength, encouragement, and comfort. That's what it looks like to welcome the gift of prophecy. It's to say, God, would you use me to bring strengthening, encouragement, and comfort into other people's lives today? We received a prophetic word a number of years ago as a church. And uh, part of it, we've just lived with for many years now. And it was a picture of a water park And I'll just read you a little bit of it. Um, I saw this park full of rides, and I saw the fun, the sheer delight of people in the different pools. And I felt God saying that this is a word and spirit church. Everything you do is to be marked with the work of the Holy Spirit. There's fun, there's dynamic, the spirit dynamic breaking in on every meeting. You never get into the dry doctrinal sense of duty. You get into the spirit on every occasion because it's the spirit that's going to do the transforming work of grace in people's lives. There's going to be a new freedom and a new expectation in worship. People just diving in and a carelessness, almost as you get with kids in a swimming pool who just go, woohoo, and bomb in and dive in with belly flops. That's something we believe God's called us to be as a church, to love the scriptures, to love the word of God, but also to honor the Holy Spirit working among us. Here's the second thing. So welcome. Say welcome. Okay. Secondly, we weigh it. Say weigh. Weigh. Scripture. So let's say anytime somebody shares something saying, I feel this is what God is saying, whether that's to you individually or to us as a church community, there has to be a mechanism by which we can say, well, is that right or not? Because actually part of being a prophetic person is, is to actually carry the heart of God and there's a vulnerability in that. Therefore, to be supportive and to honor this gift and to welcome it, we need to weigh it and say, well, let's just understand whether this is something that God is saying in this moment, or is it a future thing, or is it a more general thing, or is the application slightly wrong? Now, Scripture is our final authority on all things, but then part of weighing it is also to, to weigh it in a sense of pastoral, uh, submitting it to pastoral 
ministry and gifting. There are three things that kings would say, we'll never, never get into this territory. Dates, mates, and fates. Never say God is promising by this date. Never promise about mates and marriages and those sorts of things. Fates, whether people are going to live or die or sickness, those things. these things are unhelpful to get into. If you feel God is saying those things, maybe chat to an elder about it first before you share it with somebody. Because we want to weigh these things. It says in 1 Corinthians 14 that two or three should prophesy and then others should weigh what he's said. Part of being a prophetic person is to understand that different people will receive things in different ways. Even, even Jesus did this. I don't know if you noticed that. Where somebody like Peter, he could be pretty blunt too. He'd say to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And Peter would totally take that on a chin and be like, whoa, I don't think you really meant that. <laughs> he never, Jesus never spoke that way to the apostle John. Because I think if Jesus called John Satan, John would be like, I can't believe he just said that. If you want to carry the heart of God, then understand the person that you're speaking to and speak in ways that, that, that they understand and that they can respond to. Third thing. Third W. We walk in the light of it. It says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Do you know the real hallmark of actually living a life that's led and shaped by the prophetic? It's not just having charismatic meetings where, in fact, the Corinthian church, the, the, the correction that Paul brought to them was, he said, you're doing it all. You're having all these gifts of the Spirit. He said, the trouble is when you go home after church and somebody says, so what did God say in all of that? You'd say, I don't know, but it was a great meeting. Whereas, compare that with this. I was chatting to somebody the other day and they, and, and they said, uh, they just happened to mention me. We were talking about something and they said, they said, well, actually, God gave me this word 15 years ago and I've been thinking about it ever since and praying about it. I thought, Wow. It's different, isn't it? It's one thing to be in a meeting with you, like, that was a crazy meeting. God was here and there was some prophecies and tongues. To somebody who 15 years later is saying, I still remember the word God gave me and I'm still believing him for it. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. It says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. That's what it looks like to honor prophecy. It's to walk in it day after day, even when you don't see the fruit of it, even when you don't see any answer to the prayers you're praying on it, to say, God, through faith and patience, I know one day I will inherit this promise. 